Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice with a special bonus episode for you here, rounding up the Supreme Court's criminal law cases for the just-closed 2018-2019 term. How are you, everyone? Uh, It's good to be back with you. We aren't going to start our seventh season just yet. We're going to take another week of a quasi-hiatus, I guess I should say, because I did want to take this opportunity to post an episode today uh, rounding up all of the important cases that were decided by our U.S. Supreme Court in this past term, which started in the fall of 2018 and ended with June of 2019. Pretty interesting term, a lot of interesting cases, but interesting also, of course, for the personnel changes on the court. This was the first term for Justice Kavanaugh and the second term for Justice Gorsuch and a chance to see how they square up. Are they really the ideological twins a lot of people thought they might be? Uh, And then there's, of course, Chief Justice Roberts. Where was he going to be on some of our criminal law issues? What kind of majorities and dissenting opinions would we see? So let's jump right in. Some of these I've talked to you about on the show before, and some of them I have not. I'm going to cover almost everything that was decided by the court this year in the realm of criminal law. Let's start with one I have talked about before. This, of course, is the Curtis Flowers case. This was decided in June of 2019, and this involved race in jury selection. We did a follow-up show this year with Professor Ron Wright of Wake Forest University Law School on his Jury Sunshine Project, which is roughly complete now and shows us that race does play a role in jury selection. Well, the Curtis Flowers case is another piece of that puzzle. Here's what it was. This is a case from Mississippi, uh, a case involving murders. Uh, Mr. Flowers has been charged with two murders, and he has been tried not once, not twice, but six different times in this case. In two of those previous cases, the guilty verdicts were thrown out because of prosecutorial misconduct. In one of those previous cases, the guilty verdict was thrown out because the prosecutor made improper use of race during jury selection. And that's the issue that came up in the Supreme Court this time around. Most of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard us talk about the different ways to select juries. Jurors are taken from a pool. They're asked questions by the judge and sometimes the lawyers, too. And if they show bias, they can be excused for cause. We don't want biased jurors. But there's another way that a juror can be thrown off a jury, and that's by one of the lawyers using what are called peremptory challenges. These are challenges for which the lawyer does not have to give any reason at all, just says strike juror number one. Now, there are certain things, though, that are off limits for use uh, when we use peremptory challenges. You cannot base your peremptory challenges on race, on ethnic uh, uh, identity, or on gender. This has been the law since a case called Batson versus Kentucky uh, more than two decades ago. This case, the Flowers case, uh, comes up as a type of Batson challenge. In the latest of his six murder trials, uh, the prosecutor who tried Mr. Flowers, and it was the same prosecutor every time, that prosecutor uh, eliminated all but one 
of the potential black jurors. And the lawyers in the case looked at the record of all six trials and found that of 42 possible black jurors in those six cases, the prosecutor had taken 41 of them off of the jury through the use of peremptory challenges. This was too much for the Supreme Court. The court said uh, that violated the Batson rule. You simply cannot use race this way to eliminate the possibility that there will be a black juror on the jury. Now, he left one on the jury, one black juror, but that did not eliminate the pattern and the evil of what the pattern showed. So the Supreme Court reversed. There can still be another trial of Mr. Flowers, a seventh trial, heaven forbid, uh, but the, <laughs> there, there should not be any further use of race during peremptory challenge selection. Next case we'll talk about is called Mitchell versus Wisconsin. This case involved taking blood from an unconscious DUI suspect without a warrant. Now, there have been several cases on the testing of DUI suspects over the last several Supreme Court terms. In some of these cases, the court uh, uh, weighed in on what constitutes a Fourth Amendment search or Fourth Amendment intrusion when we're facing a DUI situation. The court has made clear that a person can be uh, given a breathalyzer and that doesn't require a warrant. But to take the person's blood, to go beneath the skin and draw blood, that requires a warrant. The court has been very clear in saying so. Well, here the difference in the Mitchell versus Wisconsin case, what made this case uh, unique and what I, I assume prompted the court to take it, was that the suspect was unconscious at the time. The suspect could not consent uh, and uh, therefore the police went ahead and just drew the blood anyway. And they did this under a Wisconsin law that says when you get a driver's license, you impliedly consent to a blood draw. And because the state argued the suspect was unconscious uh, and, and his uh, blood was drawn under this implied consent law, he couldn't, was not in a position to withdraw the implied consent. That idea of implied consent is not new. Uh, I remember this from way, way back when I was getting my own driver's license in the state of Illinois. I was very young. Uh, the idea is that when you get a license, you impliedly consent to do certain things. And then it was you impliedly consent to take a breathalyzer. If you decline to take a breathalyzer when asked to do so by the police, your license could be revoked. And in earlier cases, courts, including the Supreme Court, say, well, that's not a criminal penalty just to have your license revoked. So that kind of implied consent is okay. This is different. The blood was drawn. It was used to convict him of a criminal offense. And surprisingly to me, the Supreme Court said, nope, this is okay. This is okay. It is a Fourth Amendment intrusion to take somebody's blood, and normally it would require a warrant. But here, the person is unconscious. The evidence, of course, is being destroyed by the body itself. The blood alcohol is being broken down by the body. But that fact alone hasn't been enough to convince the court to allow blood draws in other DUI cases. What made the difference was that the defendant was unconscious and not in a position to assert his rights.
I'm very puzzled by this case. I'm going to look forward to reading it deeply and finding out what made the difference. Now, another thing that made this uh, uh, term particularly interesting, as I said before, new personnel on the court. And nobody was more interesting to me than Justice Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch uh, came out and showed that he has some significant differences with the usual conservative block that he joins in criminal law and criminal justice issues. And he delivered of himself a couple of very interesting majority opinions uh, in the criminal law area. Let's take first uh, United States versus Davis. Uh, in this case, the court was weighing in on the interpretation of a federal statute. That, that, that is one of the things that federal courts do. They interpret federal statutes, and the Supreme Court is part of that interpretation process if a case makes it up to the court. Uh, in this particular case, U.S. versus Davis, uh, the court was passing a kind of federal statute that allowed for an enhanced prison sentence for a, quote, crime of violence. Justice Gorsuch, writing for the majority, bringing forth his inner Antonin Scalia, uh, his predecessor, said uh, that he found this phrase, crime of violence, just too vague. And there is a technical legal term and a technical legal doctrine for this very problem. This is called void for vagueness. They find a statute void for vagueness, and that's exactly what Justice Gorsuch did. The principle at stake in a case like this is that laws that are too vague violate the Constitution's due process clause because us regular folks need to be able to understand what exactly the law calls for. We need to be able to conform our conduct to law. And police, uh, kind of on the flip side of it, uh, they enforce the law, but they can't be given so much discretion by a vague law that they, they can basically do anything. So vagueness is a true and real problem, and other cases have been decided on this basis before. Laws have to be at least somewhat specific so that police and regular folks can know what to do and how to act. Now, in point of fact, you know, the defendants uh, involved in void for vagueness cases are usually, well, to use a term that we use here in other contexts, they're usually behaving badly. But just behaving badly doesn't turn out to be enough. In order to be charged and convicted under a particular statute, that statute has to be right. And one of the ways in which it must be right is it must be specific enough. And in Davis, the defendant earned additional prison time for, quote, using, carrying, or possessing, close quote, a gun in connection with any federal, quote, crime of violence. The phrase crime of violence, Justice Gorsuch said, just too vague. Here's another case in which Justice Gorsuch sided with uh, his more liberal colleagues, uh, United States versus Haymond. And in that case, Haymond, uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, wrote for a majority that invalidated a federal statute mandating immediate reincarceration of sex offenders on parole who were found in possession of child pornography without any trial on that additional offense. Nothing doing, uh, Justice Gorsuch said, writing for three other justices, which of course makes four, and then Justice Breyer joined in a somewhat narrower, separate opinion of his own for five votes. Gorsuch said in the Heyman case that you just can't give someone more prison time, more or less automatically, without a jury finding of guilt for that crime. And I'm going to read you a quote here because I think it really stands out. Here we go. Quote, only a jury 
acting on proof beyond a reasonable doubt may take a person's liberty. That promise stands as one of the Constitution's most vital protections against arbitrary government. Close quote. And here's a little more. Quote, Yet in this case, a congressional statute compelled a federal judge to send a man to prison for a minimum of five years without impaneling a jury of his peers or requiring the government to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. As applied here, we do not hesitate to hold that the statute violates the Fifth and Sixth Amendment. Well, there you go. Justice Gorsuch showing some interesting color in a way that I think a lot of people might not have ex expected. Here's uh, another case we did talk about during the term uh, and fairly recently uh, posted a bonus for you on this, but it's worth saying a little bit about this again. The Gamble case, uh, double jeopardy, the dual sovereignty doctrine. Can you be prosecuted for the same crime first under state and then under federal law or vice versa? The, the key thing is both. Can you be prosecuted under both? Because, you know, that double jeopardy clause thing in the Constitution that says you can't be prosecuted twice for the same crime. Well, for 170 years, we've had this thing called the dual sovereignty doctrine, which basically says states and federal government, you are different. You are different for purposes of criminal prosecution, and therefore both can prosecute and both can even impose a sentence. 170 years of uh, precedent behind that. The Supreme Court was asked uh, should this still stand? Does this make any sense at all? And I've already weighed in uh, in, in the uh, other uh, uh, bonus that I did post for you as saying I think this is a very bad idea, something who, whose time is really up. Well, the, the Supreme Court reexamined that doctrine, the dual sovereignty doctrine, and said, nope, we think this is fine. The dual sovereignty doctrine will stand. Therefore, states, federal government, you may both prosecute essentially for the same crime and even impose separate punishments. This case uh, had attracted some significant attention for reasons having nothing to do with that 170 years of precedent, but because there was this feeling at some point that President Donald Trump might try to pardon some or all of his advisors who had gotten into trouble during the Mueller investigation, some of whom had been given prison sentences, mostly Paul Manafort. There was all kinds of, of talk at one point about pardoning him. And the president's pardon power only goes as far as federal crimes. It has nothing to do with state crimes. So the idea was, if you would change the dual sovereignty doctrine, in fact, abrogate it after 170 years, that might change the game. It would mean that if the feds had already prosecuted, the state could not. So if Trump pardoned Manafort or somebody else, uh, the, the president uh, would make Manafort safe from any other prosecutions. Well, we know that that won't happen now, and, the, and New York State, which is investigating and prosecuting Manafort on other charges, is free to do so. Okay, uh, another case that we did talk about during the year, Tim's versus Indiana, the state of Indiana, uh, you may remember, seized Mr. Tim's $42,000 Land Rover when they busted him for selling $200 worth of drugs. Uh, Tim's was prosecuted and did fulfill all the conditions of his criminal sentence, uh, but the state insisted on keeping Tim's vehicle, his very expensive vehicle anyway, 
$200 sale of drugs, $42,000 seizure of property. The Supreme Court held that the seizing of the vehicle violated the Eighth Amendment's provision on excessive fines. And this was interesting for law nerds generally because that part of the Eighth Amendment had never been applied to the states. As many of you probably know, the provisions of the Bill of Rights were only applicable to the federal government when they were first drafted and accepted as part of the Constitution. And little by little, over time, over decades, in the 20th century, the Supreme Court incorporated many pieces of the Bill of Rights into the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. This is the latest uh, one of those. So the excessive fine clause does apply to the states. A fine cannot be excessive, and, and with it probably goes the power to do enormous civil asset forfeitures that are disproportionate to the crime charged. Uh, this could be a major challenge to that practice that's out there. We did a major episode on this uh, a couple of years ago. Seizing uh, assets civilly is a highly controversial practice, still in use in many places that is, in my opinion, wrongly used as a funding stream for law enforcement. And this, the Tim's case, is something that could finally put a stop to it or at least put the brakes on Next case, Gundy versus the United States. Uh, in uh, the federal system and in many places in the country, we have sex offender registry lists. There is a federal statute on this called SORNA, Sex Offender Registration Notification Act, S-O-R-N-A. And uh, the controversy in this case is that some sex offenders convicted prior to the passage of SORNA uh, would they have to register as sex offenders? They didn't have to register when they were convicted, but can they be required to be registered anyway now, even though registration wasn't the law when they were convicted? And uh, would failure to do so uh, result in a criminal conviction? That's what happened to this fellow Gundy. The Supreme Court decided that, uh, that the uh, sex offender did indeed have to register under SORNA, even though that wasn't the law when he was convicted. And the case was based on an obscure but very important constitutional doctrine called non-delegation. Uh, that's all about agency rulemaking powers rather than criminal law principles. So while it affects uh, sex offenders convicted before the passage of SORNA, the case, the Gundy case, could have far-reaching applications well beyond criminal law and criminal justice in the arena of administrative law and federal agency power and the power of administrative agencies in the federal government even if the case itself was, was decided in the very limited world of the criminal justice sphere. There were a few others decided this term, uh, Quarles versus the United States, uh, an opinion by Justice Kavanaugh interpreting the meaning of the word burglary for purposes of whether it qualified as a, quote, violent felony under federal law, couple of others on the death penalty, Madison versus Alabama, Moore versus Texas. Uh, we won't go into those in detail. That runs down all of the major criminal law decisions of the term. Now, we know here at Criminal Injustice that for many of our listeners, your interest in the law and the legal system, what the Supreme Court does, goes beyond just criminal cases. Uh, so we've got something extra for you. 
Uh, as I do many times, I appeared on The Confluence, a public affairs show on WESA-FM here in Pittsburgh, our flagship public radio station, where I am the station legal analyst and host Kevin Gavin and I had a wide-ranging discussion about not just a couple of these criminal cases, and we did talk about a couple of these, but also some of the biggest ones in the term. Uh, The American Legion case, the big cross on public land, uh, the census case, the gerrymandering case, all of those will be covered there, and we'll be posting that up in just a day or two or three as soon as we get the audio. That's it for now. Thanks very much for listening. I'm David Harris for Criminal Injustice. I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Wallerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com.